Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2017 festival, Chris Patton, politician, UK cabinet minister and the last governor of Hong Kong, talks about his memoir, First Confession. The chair is broadcaster John Bowman and the episode was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 30th of September 2017. May I thank you for coming, and in such numbers. And I know one or two of you, because I can see one or two faces may have heard this before, but truthfully, a large audience is a wonderful thing for a speaker. And I know that particularly because some years ago, I was asked by the history master in my daughter's school to talk to the parents about uh, teaching history at second level. And I said, that's fine, but will not the decline of history at second level be reflected perhaps in poor numbers. He said, leave the publicity to me, you get on with the paper, which I did. When I arrived, when I was going out, there was flash flooding in, in Dublin and my wife said to me, nobody's going to go out tonight to here. And when I arrived at the car park, I was so pleased because I saw all these, mainly younger mothers actually, rushing through the rain in to hear me. And what I didn't know was that there was a master class in, breast, in bus, getting your bus line back after breastfeeding. <laughs> And another one on cellulite and another on, stre on stretch marks. <laughs> and when I went in to give the, the, the talk, there were three, three parents. <laughs> so anything, anything over three. And, and so I thank you for being here in such numbers. But let me tell you, I was later that year uh, at a, the World Conference of Psychiatrists in Paris, and I was the... the uh, I was the extra. My wife was attending as one of 2,000 people. And in the plenary, it was like this. It was packed. And then this, I was telling this man who said, I don't think I'll have big numbers. He was in room B12. But he could see his name in lights in the Irish Journal of Psychiatry, paper read. And he had an audience of one. <laughs> and when he went down to thank this chap for being there, he said, don't go now. I'm on next. <laughs> See. You can see, Chris, that you have drawn the crowds. You can tell your grandchildren just how many were here. But I don't need to do any breast enhancement. <laughs> <laughs> now, Chris Patton has written this book, his, at least his fourth, probably there are some others as well. And he is Chancellor of Oxford University. He's the last governor of Hong Kong. 1992 to 1997. He was Conservative MP for the astonishing and beautiful city of Bath uh, from in the 1980s, 1979 to 92. They were the Thatcher years plus. And he was Minister for the Environment and he was also a minister in Northern Ireland. So he's very wide experience. And he's formerly, of course, uh, the, he was, sorry, I just at, at the end of that, he was the man who won the 1992 British election for the Conservatives because he was running the campaign, and that was the surprise result. Unfortunately, in your own case, Chris, you didn't win your seat. So that was a really big turning point in your career, wasn't it? Because you, you were tipped as if once they won, if you had got your seat, you were going to be probably Foreign Secretary or Chancellor. Yeah, John Major said in his um, memoirs that 
I was going to be Chancellor of the Exchequer. So instead of, um, instead of uh, being, as it were, um, Norman Lamont, um, I, the voters of Bath chose the governor of Hong Kong, um, which was a curious uh, twist to democracy. And I had a great five years um, in Hong Kong, which is the best job I've ever had. So chance and luck have a very play a very big part in all political careers, don't they? Yes, I, sweet are the uses of adversity. I mean, I've always thought that um, um, life isn't a progress um, to the sunlit uplands. You deal one series of predicaments after another, and you cope with them as well and as cheerfully as you can, and you go on coping with them. Um, uh, I, I don't. Uh, think that I'll ever retire in a conventional sense. Um, and that way I'm, I may keep going. But Hong Kong was a great stroke of luck. And then after that, um, which we may talk about later, I had a, um, a terrifically interesting job in, in, in Northern Ireland. And then I went to Brussels to become a commissioner. And in the mean, and along the way, became chancellor of uh, Oxford University, the last election I fought. Um, it's a post which is elected for life. Um, like I, like the Dalai Lama, or I used to say the Pope until uh, Benedict uh, proved that proved that wrong. Um, I'm not allowed to say the Dalai Lama anyway, in case the um, Chinese ambassador's here. So, um, so, so I, I've been very lucky. You don't normally worry too much about the Chinese ambassador being here or otherwise. Uh, well, no, he sometimes worries about me being here. Um, uh, but um, <clears throat> he made a fuss when I went to Hong Kong. Uh, not this last time, last week, but the time before, <clears throat> and um, said that didn't we realize how many Chinese students um, there were at Oxford University? There were probably, including the mainland, there were pro including um, Hong Kong, there were probably 12, 1250. Um, and uh, the reply he was given was that, well, if we didn't have so many Chinese students, perhaps we'd have more Indians. <laughs> Let's, we've, there are so many chapters in this, in this book and, and in, your, in your life as reflected in this, in this, um, in this book. But let's just stay with the Conservative Party for the moment in your political career. While uh, it's still there, you mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, Margaret Thatcher, in her autobiography, uh, says she names five... She, she agrees, first of all, that her successor is unlikely to be of her own generation. She thinks there's nobody there who, who would fit the bill. Who is any good. <laughs> well, that's not the way she put it. But she named five possible successors, Major, Hurd, Baker, Clark, and Patton. And then she two, two further names, which she didn't think would be quite in the running. But she did point you out as somebody who needed the ministerial experience to be possibly the next leader of the party and possibly then prime minister. Were you aware at the time that that was her view? No, I wasn't. Um, but I have to say that um, while she knew that I disagreed with her about a lot, not least her attempt to turn cons the conservative um, uh, portfolio of views into an ism, because Labour, Part Labour Party had an ism, she thought conservatives should have one as well. While she knew I objected to that and some other aspects of what she'd been doing, um, she was nevertheless um, always pretty generous to me, both personally, um, both very kind, um, and also advanced my political career. 
Um, so uh, I certainly don't think that whatever her demerits, she ever presided over a narrow uh, church. She was she was she advanced people like John Major and Ken Clark as as well as me. I suppose vanity um, makes one sometimes think that think that some of the um, other right wing candidates for those jobs weren't as good as they thought they were. Um, but um, she was she was kind to me. She used to come to Hong Kong quite a lot, and she was the and um, we had an embarrassingly large number of staff in our colonial mansion, but she was the only guest we ever had who used to make her own bed. Um, <laughs> it was a sort of person, she never really trusted anybody else to do things like that. I once crept into the bedroom and had a look at how it was done. It was as the sergeant major had been there before um, Colonel's inspection. But nevertheless, she did see Northern Ireland's, I mean, she sent Jim Pryor there. Now that was, that was deliberate, that was Siberia. I mean, you, had, yeah. you called it Siberia, did you? Well, it used to be called in British politics like, like being sent to a, um, a Siberian power station, um, which was, um, I think, something that, that greatly offended people like Garrett Fitzgerald, who recognized that Britain had treated Northern Ireland over the years as a sort of political slum. Um, it, it had treated Northern Ireland um, with a, a substantial amount of amnesia. And I think the British political establishment for decades had behaved towards Northern Ireland, uh, like the political establishment in Washington behaved towards the southern states. Um, uh, people never looked at the gerrymandering or the way in which um, money was spent in some communities, but not in others. Uh, people never looked at, um, at how fair and decent an example of, of democracy it was. They just preferred to look the other way. Um, and uh, I think that accounts for some of the problems that, um, that occurred there. Um, I, I, she sent, she sent um, to Northern Ireland a, a, a selection of, of the wettest people to use the lingo, the sort of public school lingo um, that she rather liked if you, <clears throat> if you were a bit to the left of Genghis Khan. Um, <laughs> she, she sent a succession of, of wets there. So I had a very amiable time in the early stages um, with uh, uh, Jim Pryor, Nick Scott, um, and myself. And she's said to have said to some colleagues, um, we'll have to wean him off spending money when he comes back. She, she actually has said, I'm sometimes confused by what I might have read in, in uh, an internal memorandum and what she might have published, so I'm not sure whether this was in public or not, but that she had the view that Northern Ireland was very expensive. It, which it was. Yes, but, but um, she felt as even, prime minister. Even, yeah. even more expensive when you start giving bungs to the DUP. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it, it, it was expensive, and, and one reason why it was expensive um, was because of security and some of the, um, uh, the, the crooked aspects of, of the paramilitaries on both sides. Um, for example, we spent a huge amount on housing when I was there, and the quality of the public housing um, uh, was rather higher than in the UK. The costs were spectacularly, in the rest of the UK, sorry. The, the, the costs were, were spectacularly higher, partly, um, one discovered as one went along, partly because of the security element, partly because um, every a bit of the construction industry was paying off gangs, whether gangs of, uh, uh, from one side or, or, or the other. So it was more expensive um, and uh, unfortunately, um, we weren't, we were never very successful in generating um, many jobs in that um, political atmosphere. 
Um, we made huge attempts at urban rehabilitation. My successor in the job I had in Northern Ireland was a, was a, was a tremendous guy called Richard Needham, um, who, uh, to show how complicated identity um, can be, um, was um, an Irish peer, um, the, the, the son of an Irish peer and the son of a Jewish German. So um, he, he became rather, he was rather a complicated fellow, but a brilliant minister. Um, and he actually got things done, which was one of um, the problems that beset his career. And he, he ran in with... <laughs> did, did, wasn't, wasn't, didn't he also say something about Thatcher which was leaked or which was overheard? Yeah, he... he um, this is... Uh, I move into um, gender-challenging territory. Um, he was caught by um, a, a paramilitary um, uh, recording device referring to her these aren't my words, referring to her as the old cow. And the paramilitary organization concerned, I think must have sold the tape to a Sunday newspaper, certainly it got into the hands of a Sunday newspaper, which then plastered it all over the, first, over the front page. Um, and that um, wasn't very good for his career. <laughs> um, but he, he, he became Minister of Trade and probably the best Minister of Trade Britain has had, well, in my political time. Was being, was being a Catholic any a disadvantage or advantage or was, did you bring balance to the team or was that a factor at all? Or was, can, could you be neutral about all that? You know, I don't think it, it was ever um, much of a factor. I, I suspect it was when I was selected as a candidate because my predecessor um, was part of the local Freemasons Lodge. Never said this before, but it's true. Um, and I suspect there was some um, nervousness about having a, having a, a, a papist um, in, in his seat. Uh, in the cabinet, no, I don't think I was ever aware of the fact that um, being a Catholic was a disadvantage. No, I meant within um, Northern Ireland. Within Northern Ireland. Ireland. Well, yeah. just, just one point yeah. about being in the cabinet. The one thing that used to happen in the cabinet was I used to get consulted about Church of England appointments, which always <laughs> rather surprised me <laughs> because I was, I was one of the believers um, uh, in, our, in the God of all of us. Um, in Northern Ireland, yeah, it, it was. I mean, um, I was a I was a tag. I caused great um, alarm when at the first um, uh, municipal lunch in Stroke City in Derry slash Londonderry. Um, <laughs> at the beginning of lunch, after the um, uh, the Bishop of Londonderry Derry um, had uh, <laughs> had said grace, I did what I'd been doing since I was four or five, I made the sign of the cross. And this was a terrific, um, <laughs> terrific statement. Um, uh, I'm I married to um, a member of the Church of England. Um, it, it, it was, there was sometimes a bit of embarrassment, I think, when I went to the, um, her, her services in the governor's church in, uh, uh, in Hong Kong. Um, and I remember an interview when I was um, asked um, what it was like to be part of a mixed marriage, as though I'd got married to a Martian. I mean, it was... <laughs> um, so so there, there were some, um, some difficult, difficult moments. Um, and, but deep down, um, I always felt, and it's, it's one of the things which um, I tried to write about, that the divisions in Northern Ireland, the identity in Northern Ireland, uh, wasn't a question of, of one side's concerns about Luther's 95 theses. Um, and the other side's about um, transubstantiation. It was about power. Um, and it was about who had a swagger. 
Um, I saw this afternoon um, for tea um, one of my heroes, a great polymathic um, Catholic civil servant who was ombudsman in, in Northern Ireland, and before that one of my permanent secretaries, Maurice Hayes, who was senator, I think, here and chaired the European uh, Commission, a really, great, a really great man. And he used to tell me a story about um, a family moved into the next door house to his in Downpatrick. They'd been burnt out of, of, uh, of, of Belfast, um, a Catholic family. And he hears the kids playing uh, in the garden one morning. Uh, and uh, one of the little girls says to her um, uh, brothers and sisters, it's my turn to be the prod now. <laughs> and he leans over the fence and says, Mary, what do you mean? And she says, it's my turn on the swing. <laughs> and from, from that age, from that age, knowing what the power structures were, um, uh, was clearly more important than knowing about um, um, Luther or um, uh, Thomas More. And would you, did you ever have the ambition, or even without discussing it publicly, did you ever have the ambition to be prime minister? Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a tennis player and a cricketer, and I used, when I was a kid, I used to spend most of my life um, bowling out Australia. Um, so if you go into politics, um, I don't think many people go into politics um, in order to um, just spend their lives going through the division lobbies. So I would have, of course, liked to be prime minister. One of, one of the reasons why I so enjoyed being governor of Hong Kong because we, was because you could get so much done. Um, uh, every year we um, cut taxes, increased spending, increased the money in the reserves, and built an airport out of, uh, out of revenue. Um, you were actually making things happen um, because the economy was so successful. So I guess um, if I'd ever um, got that job, I would have, I would have um, wanted to enjoy it. But I never thought I would because um, I think it's very difficult for somebody um, look at the career of, of Ken Clark, who's on the left of the Conservative Party, and unashamedly on the left of the Conservative Party, and um, becoming um, Prime Minister. I think it was difficult for one of my heroes, Rab Butler, um, whom I write quite a lot about in this book, who was um, my sort of ideal of um, sort of perfect um, Conservative Minister, right down to his extraordinary um, comprehension of the value of ambivalence, which I think is an underrated <laughs> political asset. Um, so I, I would have liked to have been, but I never thought I would be. Um, I, I didn't, um, I mean, I didn't have the same sort of um, twinkle in my eye that Jacob Rees-Mogg has. <laughs> <laughs> and in 1992 then, did you just write, did you just forget it? Because you were offered a safe seat, weren't you, to stay in politics and possibly join the cabinet? We'd, we'd, we'd been through um, a pretty bruising time. Because I was chairman of the Conservative Party, my wife and family had to do a lot of the legwork in my constituency, and it was a pretty nasty experience. Um, sometimes, sometimes people suggest that um, somehow there, there's something um, slightly lily-livered about, about Liberal Democrats. Well, I never experienced that. It was, I found it much easier to fight somebody from the Labour Party. Um, my agent in, my, in this election was gay, and he was outed for being the, um, uh, the president of gay Southwest, whatever that may be. Um, and the Liberals used that 
remorselessly and ruthlessly during the campaign. Um, my wife had gone through this campaign doing much more of the campaigning than I did. And after that, I really didn't think I could subject her again, um, even though they were offering to parachute me into Kensington and Chelsea. And I just remembered what had happened to a Labour minister when that had uh, been done in the past. And he, he lost the seat um, and, and, and acted as, as foreign secretary for a bit without any constituency. So they, people talked about being parachuted into, into that constituency. They talked about um, me being secretary of state to defense in the House of Lords or, or foreign secretary and then coming back later to the House of Commons. I thought it was all a bit unseemly. Um, and unfair to my family. Um, and when John Major said um, there was this um, other job in Hong Kong, which I knew, which I'd first visited in 1979, I jumped at it and never, never um, regretted it. It's a, it's a great, wonderful city. And at present is in, on the, the crossroads of a lot of the issues that will be defining ones in the 21st century, I think. And wh why have you described that five-year experience as, as your best as your best uh, political chapter in your political career? Let me go back to something I said um, just now. Sorry to repeat myself a bit. But if, if you're a politician, it's very unusual to see the policies that you've thought and talked about, your dreams and schemes, actually coming to fruition. Um, but that was never a problem in Hong Kong partly because the resources were there. I never had to make a difficult decision about choice of priorities. I could always do everything because Hong Kong had been growing for 25, 26 years at six and a half, seven, eight percent a year. Um, and we had money coming out of our ears. Um, also partly because the Hong Kong civil service was so good and so competent and made things happen. Um, one of the first jobs, things I did when I got to Hong Kong was not because I didn't think they were any good, but because I was trying to make a point. Um, I encouraged the retirement of all my expatriate civil servants. And I had, a, with the exception of the Attorney General, I had an entirely Chinese team. And they were fantastically good, uh, led, by, led by a woman who's the best woman, well, best civil servant I've ever worked with. Um, so I got things done. I loved the people. They were so nice to me and kind to me. And it's a, it's a feisty place. There's, there's, a, there's a great um, Canadian uh, economist, urban economist called Jane Jacobs, who, who wrote a book about the extent to which cities were responsible for economic growth. And she talks about the importance of urban clutter in promoting growth. Now, you go to Singapore, there's not much clutter. You go to Hong Kong, there's load of, loads of clutter, lots more excitement, actually, um, given the resources, um, certainly in the past, there was even more growth. Um, no social engineering. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew once said to me, um, if I had your people, my GDP would be 25% higher. And I said, well, even if you tried to cane them, you wouldn't get Hong Kong people to stand in a line like that or to, not to spit on the railway um, or to not to smoke in the streets. So, so Hong Kong was, for me, the, the, the best possible example of how you could still be a free society, even though you weren't democratic, which I wish they had been. Um, uh, and it was, it was, I had great friends there. Um, when we were leaving on uh, Britannia, and we'd been saying goodbye to people on the quayside, um, uh, 
Prince Charles, Prince of Wales, who we were sailing back with. Um, sorry, I think he'd put it the other way around. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Prince of Wales said, Chris, she said, did everybody in Hong Kong play tennis with you? Um, so it, it, it was full of friends, very exciting place to live in, um, and uh, uh, a great job. And dealing with the Chinese was, of course, um, interesting. <laughs> the former colony was to remain unchanged for 50 years until 2047, and you want, your goal was to embed democracy there. Now, that hasn't happened. No, it, just let me say some, one thing about the former colony. Um, I am, as you know, um, of Irish heritage. Um, 1829, Boyle Roscommon. My great-grandfather was born. I noticed the other day, incidentally, that the population of Boyle is now lower than it was in 1829. Um, and I think he would have, and my grandfather... And he wasn't a King Harmon. He wasn't of the big house. No, he wasn't. He, was, uh, yeah. he went, his first job when he got to, um, uh, when he got to Lancashire was to repair the bottoms of cane bottom chairs. Um, so I think he would have been, and my grandfather would have been quite surprised um, that this um, uh, part of the Irish diaspora was the last British colonial governor who closed, <laughs> who closed down the British Empire. I think that would have, um, uh, that would have uh, uh, surprised him uh, quite a lot. Um, there, was a real, there was a real problem about, about Hong Kong for both the Chinese and us. Um, for the Chinese side, um, Hong Kong was associated with some of the humiliations of 19th century history of uh, terrible things done by the um, colonial powers, not least by Britain, which introduced China to globalization through the opium trade. Also, a hugely smarting, chastening experience for China must have been seeing, um, it, it turned out to be more than half the population of, of Hong Kong, fleeing from the events in Mao's China, clambering over razor barbed wire, swimming through uh, dangerous waters to get to this colonial outpost um, because it offered them um, a, a free life. I remember one of them saying to me that he cried when he got to Hong Kong and picked up a bar of chocolate in the street. Uh, he'd fled during the Cultural Revolution. So to the Chinese, it must have been... Um, curious to see so many of their fellow citizens wanting to go to this um, uh, city on a hill or city on an island. Um, on the British side, um, it was particularly difficult, partly because um, uh, British governments and British commerce always wanted, I guess the same as here, to have as good an economic relationship with China as possible, um, even while China was weaponizing trade. Um, and secondly, because there was a real moral um, problem. Um, just before I left Hong Kong, I was visiting a, a hospital for the mentally handicapped um, in the New Territories. And I'm walking along past a ward, past, past, down, down a lane between wards built in sort of Nissan huts. And at the bars of one of these um, wards, there's a Chinese chap in three-piece suit who says, Governor, Governor could, could I have a word with you? He speaks beautiful English. So I walk across and he says to me, can you just answer one question, which I've never known the answer to. He said, um, how is it that you call yourselves a, a democracy, one of the oldest in the world, and you know that China is the last big communist Leninist tyranny, 
why are you handing us back to China without asking us what we think? And it was true. The fact is that we couldn't have done so. We couldn't have done anything to reverse um, the terms of the lease that had been signed, which meant that we had to leave Hong Kong in 1997. But it was a real moral issue, a real problem. Um, we probably should have done more in the 1970s and 80s to um, bed down at least the beginnings of democracy. Um, but at the time, among other things, there were not only some self-serving arguments, but the Chinese were pressing Britain not to introduce democracy because they said it'll give people the wrong idea. It'll make them think they're going to be um, uh, an independent country at some stage, like Singapore. Um, but after the joint declaration, which was um, the way of encapsulating Deng Xiaoping's one country, two systems, which was what embraced all this complexity um, extremely cleverly. Um, after we'd uh, signed that treaty, um, uh, we should have done more at that stage to, um, uh, to uh, start the democratic And process. what's your view of what has happened since? It's just 20 years ago. Well, we'd start, we'd st we started um, um, uh, to introduce democracy. Um, uh, I didn't actually break any treaties or any agreements, but I, I, f I filled in the gaps um, as much as, as imaginatively as I could. And we were pretty good at putting in place uh, laws on things like um, human rights, um, civil liberties. Uh, we put in place a decent um, judicial system. Um, and the Chinese promised that they would allow the continuing development of democracy. So they, they, they went back on that, which was perhaps um, inevitable. Um, what wasn't inevitable was that increasingly, particularly under President Xi Jinping, they've been tightening their grip on Hong Kong. People have been abducted in the streets. There have been attacks on the, on the uh, judiciary. Um, their local uh, office um, is obviously interfering far more in Hong Kong's affairs. And they've been using, um, or the Secretary of Justice in Hong Kong has been using a colonial law on illegal assembly to lock up three years after the event, let it be said, um, some of the leaders of the democracy movement in uh, Hong Kong. Um, some of them very impressive. Some, young. Joshua, Joshua yeah. Wong, who was, we'd invited him to come to Oxford last night where we had a, um, a debate on illiberalism and populism. Um, he couldn't come, one of his colleagues um, came in his stead. A colleague who's about himself to face um, charges. And it is, it's true. The, ju the judicial system is being used to do this um, and the law is, is being used to do it. But um, against the background of what we know is happening elsewhere, um, it obviously raises real concerns about um, how much the rule of law is going to be undermined in the next few years. And I don't think that's, um, that, that's very surprising. J Joshua Wong is a really remarkable young man and I think he will have um, a, a really big influence, not just in in Hong Kong, but in Asia and beyond. And I said to him uh, on one occasion, um, doesn't your family worry about you? He's said, really very young, isn't he? He's 20, 21. Yeah. Um, remarkably mature. And he said, no, 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 they don't worry. And then he paused for a minute and said, actually my mum does. <laughs> and any mum would, but any mum who had him um, who had him as a son would be very, very proud because he's a really remarkable young man. They, they all are, but they're now, they're now arguing 
for freedom of speech on campuses, at the same time as people on campuses in America and Europe are arguing against having freedom of speech, um, which is, um, uh, I think, a terrible example of bullying anti-electoralism, which we shouldn't stand for for two minutes, one minute. Throughout this book, and you were obviously writing it in just after the whole Brexit vote, but the Brexit is is there all the time with different asides. And you ask at one point, um, what brought us in Britain, in the UK, to vote for relegation to a lower division? Do you think that's what's happened? Yeah, I do. Um, Let me tell you one one story. One of the best speakers I've ever heard, the best speaker I've ever heard in Parliament was Michael Foote. When people compare Jeremy Corbyn with Michael Foote. Well, it's, it's like comparing Ed Balls dancing with Nijinsky. I mean, it's <laughs> completely absurd. And, and Michael Foote was making a speech in the House of Commons after Keith Joseph, a, a well-meaning, a decent, a clever um, a politician who fell among intellectual hucksters. And, and Keith Joseph, as business secretary, has been going around the West Midlands and Lancashire Um, and Yorkshire, um, looking at industry which was devastated by high interest rates, monetary policy, the days when we used to talk about economic policy as though it was motorways, um, and uh, high exchange rate. Um, So Keith Joseph is looking pained at at what he's seeing. Michael Foote makes this speech in the House of Commons. You can still get it on YouTube. And he said it, looking at Keith Joseph's face, reminded him um, of his favorite um, comedian um, when he was an MP for Plymouth. And he used to go along and to the music hall every Saturday night, and this, this comic would, would uh, do his routine, and his routine in, in involved pretending to be a magician and so on. So at the beginning of the act, um, the comic would go to the front of the stage and, and ask if he could borrow somebody's watch. And a very oldermanic figure, the same stooge every time, would hand up what looked like a gold watch. And the comedian would take it up, put it on the desk in front of him, cover it with a cloth, pick up a huge hammer and bring it smashing down on the watch. He'd then say, abracadabra. He'd pick up the piece of cloth. He'd look rather nervous, put it down again, go through the same routine, pick up the cloth. Then you'd see him sweeping shards of broken glass (laughs) and broken watch mechanics second hands, minute hands into his hand, and he'd carry them down to the front of the stage and hand them back to the uh, alderman and say, I'm very sorry, but I've forgotten the rest of the trip. (laughs) (laughs) And that is where we are on Brexit. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Gove, uh, Mr. Johnson, um, uh, and co um, have no idea where this is all going to end. There was a British um, marching song in the, in the I, think it, I think it was in the second world, it might, might have been the first as well. Um, we won't know where we're going till we're there, repeated endlessly. Um, well, that, that's where we are. Uh, it's the most egregious example of uh, national self-harm that I can remember. It's the worst thing um, that's happened politically in my lifetime, um, beyond a doubt in Britain. 
maybe Suez was as bad in a sense, but Suez was, it was the end of an imperial era which had to close anyway. Th this is sketching out what future? Nobody can tell me. We, we've been producing for, for weeks or months papers on the various aspects of the whole thing, including uh, Northern Ireland. And what they tend to say is, well, it's a very difficult problem. Uh, we'd really like to solve it. But as it's so difficult, perhaps you can show your goodwill by solving it for us. <laughs> by and large, what the, what the, what the uh, document in Northern Ireland says, for, for example. Well, um, it's a pretty curious way of, um, of uh, conducting our affairs. And um, I, I believe at the end of the day, it might not be, there might not be a great cliff or a great uh, train wreck, but I think we will get steadily poorer and less significant. Uh, and we should have learned that if you're a small or medium-sized power in the world, you need to work with other people in order to, um, uh, in order to get the aggregate um, of, uh, of, their, of their strength and yours. I, there was a wonderful example of this the other day. Um, BBC News, it must be true. The B BBC at, at 10 to 7 had an interview with a very articulate um, but completely wrong-headed um, MEP who was establishing um, an institute for free trade. Um, we should have completely free trade. Um, we, it'd all be, well, all be fine if we just um, uh, did everything by WTO rules uh, and we'd be much better off than we are now as part of the European Union. The first item on the news at seven o'clock just after this interview was about Bombardier and about um, President Trump and, uh, and tariffs on exports. No. America would never do that to Boeing, wouldn't do that to Boeing because it would lose huge market share in the European Union. But if we're on our own, uh, I fear that it's going to be extremely damaging for us, but I guess quite good for Dublin. I mean, in, not, not because of the North, but because British companies um, or multinationals will, many of them decide they need an office here or a base for the European Union here. So it's, it's profoundly disturbing, and particularly disturbing that two things. First of all, that so many young people um, are really hostile to leaving the European Union. Secondly, disturbing because of the pattern of voting. 75% of people with a post-secondary school education voted to remain. 73% of people without a post-secondary school education voted to leave. There's a real divide opening up, like, like in the United States, between, between the, a world which believes in fact and evidence um, and uh, a sort of cocoon of prejudice. And unless we're very careful, and you can't do this by talking down to people or patronizing them, unless we find, we find some way of drawing in um, an alienated... Um, uh, but there were errors on that, weren't there? There were, this, there were real errors. It shouldn't have been allowed to get to this point. No, it like, shouldn't, no. because it's all been about, for years, for years it's been about trying to manage the right wing of the Conservative Party, and it's unmanageable. Um, I, I suspect that it, it's, um, uh, we could see um, bits of the Conservative Party breaking off, um, but you've, it's never been the case that you could um, manage um, a, number of, a number of the right wingers who've been concerned. Ken Clark used to say, they come and knock on the door um, and uh, there's an alligator there and the alligator says, I want a bun. 
uh, and then I'll go away. And you give the alligator a bun, then he comes back tomorrow and asks for two buns. And that's been what it's been like trying to manage the Conservative Party. That metaphor has been years. unhappily used in this country, which you may not know about. You need, I to, don't. Be, you need to be following Northern Ireland politics very closely to know it. But anyway, and it's, I said bun, not bung. I know that. But it's the it was the alligator coming back for more that I was okay. thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. But, but, well. but since we're on Northern Ireland, what do you believe is going to happen to the, the, the Irish border? I mean, what are, how do you read that? Well, I don't know. And I'm in good company because the government doesn't know either. Um, hence the paper the other day, which, which suggested that you or Brussels should find a solution. I mean, how, how do you... The, the only land border that, that Britain will have with the European Union um, is, the, is the border between the Republic and Northern Ireland, about which Coimbra to Bean wrote um, so wonderfully about 30 years ago. Um, and if Britain is outside the single market and outside the customs union, but the Republic of Ireland continues to be in them, how do you have frictionless free trade um, or, or movement between the one and, one and the other? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's an impossibility. And do you, from your experience of being an insider as European, as one of the British European uh, commissioners, what would your thinking be? It seems to me that the European, looking at the new borders of Europe, would be pretty unhappy with this terribly untidy border, and that the argument for a bespoke, discreet arrangement for, for Northern Ireland, which, is, which voted 57% to stay in Europe, and Scotland could come into play in this at some point, could, but it, 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 it confuses the situation or makes it more difficult at the moment. Um, Europe won't, won't be happy with that, will they? Well, Europe is, is being asked to design one bespoke agreement after another to try to accommodate um, the ideology of a few right-wingers in the Conservative Party um, and UKIP um, and uh, uh, the populist press in the, in the United Kingdom. And it's, it's not going to happen. Um, I hope that we find an answer to the border because, um, but I don't know what it is, because it's, it's quite important as well to the, con to the continuing vitality, such as that is, of the peace process, of, of, uh, of power sharing in Northern Ireland. And I think there's, there's an aspect to that which um, hasn't been much um, written about. I, I think that part of the Part of our ability to sell um, that agreement to the nationalist Republican community in Northern Ireland, part of the reason why they accepted that its constitutional status could only be changed at the ballot box was that people had the sense that they didn't have to, in any other way, show their absolutely clear loyalty to the Northern Ireland state. They had a broader loyalty. They were all part of the European Union. And if you take that away, I think it is much more difficult um, for people to accept the, the underlying moral case for, for, for power sharing. You can see, think of all sorts of utilitarian cases. So as well as other issues, the fact that um, the Belfast Agreement would, wouldn't have been possible had there not been increasing 
increasingly close relations between ministers um, in the north, between ministers in London and ministers in Dublin, wouldn't have been possible um, at the apex uh, without the relationship between Major and Reynolds or, or um, uh, Blair and Ahern. Uh, all that made it possible within the European Union. And I just think it becomes incomparably more difficult to see how that's going to work. I hope I'm wrong. Um, the last, the last uh, before the election, the last um, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, British Secretary of State, Theresa Villiers, said it was all going to be easy. But then everything is going to be easy, apparently. Can I call for questions? <laughs> yeah. Uh, good evening, John, and good evening, Chris, and thank you for a wonderful conversation. Um, just you mentioned briefly there your roots in relation to Boyle and your great-grandfather. I work for the local newspaper in Boyle called the Roscommon Herald, so I'm interested in, um, not for a scoop or anything like that, but I'm just interested in terms of your roots. Have you done much research, research on your roots in Boyle, for example? And I've read, I've read part of your book. I've just started earlier on this week, so uh, I just came to that part and was curious. Um, my, my daughter did, my eldest daughter did, uh, did um, quite a bit. One, one of the difficulties is that in the register of births, um, our name is, is spelt double T-O-N rather than E-N. Um, and when we um, asked about that, it was suggested that it was probably some um, inefficient British clerical officer who, <laughs> who was uh, responsible for it. Now, I haven't done, I haven't actually been there. Um, I'm ashamed that um, I read a lot of Irish literature, poetry, um, uh, but I don't know Ireland physically very well, and I've never been to Boyle, um, but I will now. I know Manchester, I know Manchester very well, where my grandfather, one of seven um, children of the uh, Roscommon um, pattern, um, was a head teacher for many years in, in Ancoats. Yes. So I'm afraid there's no hold the front page here for the... <laughs> You. Somebody who has the mic speaks first. Yeah, over here. I followed the negotiations in Hong Kong uh, from afar, having worked there in the previous decade. And there were many comments made during that by yourself. Um, one of them I remember on the steps of a government building with your Chinese counterpart when you claimed to have had a good day and reached agreement on certain points. Um, you were interrupted by your Chinese counterpart and he told you that no, you had a memorandum of understanding, which was quite different. <laughs> But there's one other memorable comment that I've forgotten the context of, where you expressed that you had demonstrated restraint in difficult circumstances. And it seemed to be quoted a lot in the press at the time. And I was wondering if you could remind us of the circumstances uh, in which you made that comment. No, I was showing great restraint a great deal of the time. I mean, one thing which I, I had to do from, from uh, occasionally was to remind um, my Chinese interlocutors that people from outside had, had face as well as them. And they were, they were, I was endlessly being told I had to um, uh, be helpful because otherwise they'd lose face. And I used to say, well, uh, why should you want me to lose face? We had, we had, a, we had a tough time. Um, I was turned into a democratic hero by the Chinese propaganda machine. Um, I was made to seem like um, a combination of Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Paine. The very limited changes that I made, which Hong Kong people would have liked to have seen a lot more. So I wasn't very popular with the Chinese authorities at that stage. Then I became a European commissioner who was responsible for relations with China um, and was part of the team which negotiated 
WT access and things changed. And the foreign minister of China came to see me and came into my office and he saw um, photographs of my daughters um, on the wall. And he said, are those your daughters? So I said, yes. And he said, how come, he said, such beautiful daughters have such an ugly father. <laughs> his, his ambassador to the EU was horrified by this. And he was, he was saying, the, the minister's making a joke. The minister's making a joke. During the course of that conversation, the minister announced very formally that the senior leaders had considered my position and decided that I was a force for concord, not discord. And so concerned they were they that we should note it that the um, the number two in the Chinese embassy phoned up my, my chef, my chief, my chef de cabinet to make sure he'd taken the words down correctly. Um, so I don't think, even though I was said to be condemned for a thousand generations, it didn't last very long. It was, a, it was like um, going to confession and only getting three Hail Marys. <laughs> yes. Uh, good evening. Uh, thanks, Chris, for a very interesting uh, Speak up. Use the microphone. Conversation. Um, just uh, in relation to uh, Brexit, do you think that Brexit brings the possibility of a united Ireland closer? And also, do you think that the British political establishment really mean it when they say that they would like to maintain the union uh, between Britain and Northern Ireland? Because in speaking to, um, say, ordinary English people, they seem to have very little interest in, in Scotland, let alone Northern Ireland. And that was seen when, uh, with all the controversy there was after the DUP's uh, deal with the Conservatives to, to maintain the their Conservative monetary government. There was a big backlash against the idea of uh, so much extra money going to Northern Ireland that could have gone to other uh, parts of uh, uh, Britain. Thank you. Um. I think the only possibility of a united Ireland is if, if there's a majority in both Northern Ireland and in the Republic for it. Um, and in those circumstances, the world would be a very different place. Whether there would ever be a, that majority, I don't know. I mean, demography may, may um, change things fundamentally. But there, there were two things which, and one of them some of you may think is wrong. There were two things that often struck me about the Unionist community and the Nationalist Republican community in Northern Ireland. Uh, with the Unionist community, they imagined, they had a notion of Britishness, which had nothing to do with what Britain was actually like. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's um, a harmless expression of identity to paint the curbstones red, white, and blue. It doesn't happen very much in Richmond, I can tell you. Um, and for a, for a broad-minded um, Englishman, albeit a Catholic in Northern Ireland, um, to uh, view a, an Orange Order parade is quite an experience. On the other hand, I used to wonder um, about this, whether beyond wholly identifying with the struggle for human rights and civil liberties in Northern Ireland, whether a lot of people in Northern Ireland, as things went on, as they became, as you became more prosperous in the European Union, really um, thought it would be a terrifically good idea to um, embrace um, Northern Ireland and make it part of a bigger Irish state. 
maybe I'm wrong about that, but I certainly don't think any of that will happen unless there are democratic majorities in both the North and the South. Um, and I would suspect that we're not near that at the moment. What, um, what interested me about the Belfast um, Agreement, which I think was an extraordinarily wonderful piece of diplomacy, and to which a lot of people, um, for which a lot of people should receive credit, including a lot on the Irish side and on the British side, uh, somebody who nobody ever talks about, a man called David Goodall, who was a um, Benedictine educated, so must have been a good thing, um, uh, diplomat. Uh, what was brilliant about it was that there was an understanding that the minority community would not have to accept, would not have to have a primary loyalty to the Northern Ireland state on the understanding that it accepted that that state could only change through the ballot box democratically. On the other hand, the unionist community had to accept that the primary loyalty of the smaller number of people in Northern Ireland um, would be to another idea of uh, the ideal state in which they would live. Um, and I think that was immensely sophisticated. And I was, I was always rather surprised that David Trimble didn't seem to know that's what he'd signed up to. Um, so uh, I, that's, all, that, that's I, all I can say usefully in reply to your question. But there is one point on, on, on that, Chris. The Good Friday Agreement was voted on north and south and on the one day. And something like 73% of people yeah. in the north voted for it and 95% voted in the south. That was 85% of the people of the island of Ireland on that day voted for a complex system of checks and balances and fair-mindedness in the sense that you're saying uh, with, all, with, the, with two interlocking self-determinations in a way, each respecting the other with a possible life. And so that, that was an enormous moment, I would say, in the history of the geographical space that we call Ireland. Yeah. You couldn't go back through thousands of years and ever have got 85% agreeing on such a thing. Now, that is broken. That, that moment is kind of diluted by the, the Brexit outcome. And I think that's a problem. That was at the heart of my question is, yeah. in, will Britain, I mean, do you think, for instance, Britain is going to never rejoin some European cooperation as a full member in a in hundred years time or whatever? We can't tell, obviously, but Brexit well, isn't just there forever. Nothing is there forever. <laughs> but geography is there forever. Ge geography is there forever. forever. I hope what won't be there forever um, is making a mess of sharing this archipelago, which um, yeah. partly because of uh, um, colonial power we've done for, um, and partly because people took Machiavelli's advice in the 17th century, um, uh, we've done for, for all too long. Um, I think there are three possible outcomes. The first is we simply crash out um, and uh, what are the consequences of that? The great line in uh, Shakespeare's King John, so foul a sky clears not without a storm. Well, I don't know um, 
what happens then, except that we get in Britain steadily poorer, um, and in uh, 10 years' time, when British holidaymakers are standing, provided Ryanair are flying by then, are standing, <laughs> are standing in the non-EU queue at airports around the Mediterranean, they sort of notice that the people in the next-door queue, French and German and so on, look rather more prosperous than they, they do. Second option is that there is some sort of bespoke agreement made somewhere between, I mean, Theresa May said the other day that she didn't want um, to be like Norway and she didn't want to be like um, Switzerland. Canada. Um, and I don't think they want to be like Switzerland and presumably they don't want to be like the Ukraine. So um, maybe, but maybe there is some way in, in which you can preserve a, uh, a relationship which has us on the, on the fringe, as it were, um, of the European project. Or thirdly, um, perhaps as Europe um, reforms with uh, the leadership of President Macron, if, if he survives and, uh, and others, um, Britain is able to slip back um, into the club. But could we do so on the same terms that we have now? I mean, what nobody seemed to recognize was that we had membership of the European Union on our own terms. That's what Maastricht was all about. Um, John Major, who is certainly the cleverest prime minister I've ever worked for, um, in formal senses, the least educated, but the cleverest and the most decent. John Major, the more one, one looks at his career, the more he seems to have got most things right. And finding a way in which we could be, form, we could be members of the European Union, pushing the single market hard, pushing enlargement hard, not part of the European Monetary Union, um, not part of Schengen and so on, managing all that and the European Union going along with that. Um, what, what, so what's wrong with that? And whether we could ever get that back again, um, I think is quite difficult. I'm sorry, I, 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 yes. Your country is, is leaving the European Union. Would it not turn its, turn its attention to um, revamping the Commonwealth of Nations and, and make it a more stronger, a more stronger body? It, it, it holds some of the most prosperous countries in the world, India, Australia, many African countries. Did you ever see that uh, happening? Thanks. Well. Yeah, th this is the um, this is part of the rhetoric of um, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and the others. That um, and Mrs. May has made a couple of speech on it, speeches on it. That we turn into global Britain. How the hell have we been for the last <laughs> several several hundred years? Um, when when I was uh, involved in trade negotiated and in negotiations. There was one quite simple um, law which people followed, that you double the distance and you half the trade. So are we going to make up for the 55% of our, 45% um, of our trade which goes to the European, European Union by um, having a better trade relationship with Australia um, or New Zealand or Canada or President Trump's United States? Um, in a trade negotiation with with Make America Great Again, um, President Trump. Um, how well are the British going to come out? We've just seen President Trump withdraw from the um, TPP negotiations with, um, uh, Asian, with a number of Asian states. He doesn't believe in, in free and fair trade. 
So I think it's difficult to see us um, sort of reassembling um, the British Empire, um, reassembling um, a, uh, a collection of, of largely white English-speaking um, countries which um, will buy all our products. I just don't think it's, it's likely. And if you then say, well, what about China and what about India? Um, India won't even start talking about more trade unless we talk to them about more visas. Um, the Chinese have just recently done um, a deal with Switzerland, which um, took um, years to negotiate, um, under which um, the, the Swiss have already made lots of um, uh, undertakings to the Chinese. The Chinese haven't yet um, responded or haven't actually done the things which they say what they will do. And it's, an, it's an agreement which doesn't even cover watches, which we all know um, are made in Switzerland. Um, so, uh, no, I'm not, a, I'm not a great believer in, in that. Yeah. Um, hi, Chris. Thanks for the very interesting talk. Just going back to the topic of Hong Kong, um, we've seen a lot of uh, opposition in Hong Kong towards the assimilation of Hong Kong into China. But nearby to Hong Kong, there's a second former colony. It's uh, Macau, which is a former Portuguese colony, which is going through a similar process. But there's no mainstream opposition to that assimilation. Do you have any ideas to why that might be or any views on that? Yeah, I, I don't mean to be... If, if there's any Macanese member of the audience, I apologise for... Um, seeing, seeming slightly de haut en bas, but I don't think I don't think there's a real comparison between Macau and Hong Kong. Ma Ma Macau is a a small territory which has depended for years on casinos, on gambling, um, and as such, it won't surprise you to know that the triads have been pretty um, heavily involved in uh, in Macau. Macau is not as sophisticated a community or a, or a society as Hong Kong. Um, so uh, I, I don't think it's a, it's a really good comparison. What, what people in Hong Kong want is to be able to do what they were promised, that is to run their own affairs. Um, and they want, as part of China, um, any aspirations <coughs> to be independent are crazy um, and dilute um, the support for democracy. But I think there really is um, an understanding in Hong Kong of the real relationship between economic and political freedom, um, which is, of course, going to be one of the big issues for all of us in the 21st century. Hmm. A lot of... Somebody with okay. the microphone, I'm sorry. Yeah. Thanks. Yes. Uh, just one area I'm surprised hasn't been mentioned uh, directly so far is your involvement in Northern Ireland in relation to the police service. And particularly at the moment, it's a sort of a crucial time in, in this part of the island in relation to uh, policing. And uh, if you'd like to make any comment or advice um, at this stage in relation to approaches to that, the immediate thing, I suppose, is is, is in selection of a, a Garda Commissioner, but, but the factors and circumstances around that are also important. And just uh, very briefly, a uh, quick question. Leaving aside Brexit, do you see... No, no, let's stay on policing, but the Patent oh, okay, Commission, okay, because right. we've gone through Brexit. But well, it wasn't they, to do with Brexit per se, it was to do with the, see, any reservations about aspects of your relation to the financial crisis, how that was dealt with, Greece, um, corporate lobbying, uh, how the refugees, a number of things that it, the, it has evolved 
from being a, a common market to a different okay. type of can EU I, at present. Can, can I refer, forgive me, but I, I, because you cannot know the detail of Irish policing, I, I want to put the question this way to you, Chris. How difficult, because you had this challenge in Northern Ireland on a huge scale, you're probably a world expert on the question I'm going to put to you, and, that, and it is at the heart of our policing, is how difficult is it to bring reform into policing given the sort of culture that you may find within an existing status quo, within an existing police service? Okay. I, I've been very careful not to talk about... Um, I've been offered lots of opportunities of um, doing interviews on radio and television for the last few weeks uh, on uh, policing, on the Garda Shikana, and I've declined to do so because um, I know very little about what's happened um, recently, and the problem in Northern Ireland was very different. There we were trying to take policing out of politics, we were trying to ensure that the police service was not any longer seen by both sides of the community as the principal guardian um, of the institutions of the state, but as a servant of uh, the, the public as a whole and as a guardian of people's civil liberties and human rights. Um, it was a, uh, and in doing that, to get more young Catholics, um, men and women, to join the police service in Northern Ireland rather than become police officers in Manchester or Birmingham or London or Glasgow, which was what they were doing. Now, I look back on that and um, uh, vanity bubbles to the surface because I think it was the most difficult job I've ever done and I think in many respects um, it's the one I'm proudest of. Um, two things which I think um, are relevant to what you're doing and I'm, I'm delighted. I think one of the members of our commission, Cathy O'Toole, um, is uh, heavily involved in, in all this and she's a terrific police, police officer. Two things. First of all, it's expensive because you've got to buy out the police officers who are useless. And I've shared, I'm sure there are at least two or three in the Republic. <laughs> and you've also got to spend quite a lot of money on, on technology. So they don't sit in, they're not sitting there with corona typewriters um, uh, tapping away in the police station. So money is quite expensive, and when, you, when it comes to buying people out, you have to be very ruthless about buying out the bad ones and not buying out the good ones, because um, uh, it's, e it's easy to get that wrong. The second thing is, is you do need a change manager. You need somebody who's either part of the system or is given a, a role separate from, but related to the police service, who's actually responsible for saying, um, the following things were promised, the following reforms were proposed, you're not doing them. Uh, you need a report every year, um, uh, making clear that whatever has been agreed at the end of the day is actually discharged. Unless you do that, um, the police, like every other institution, and I don't pick them out in particular, but like every other institution, um, they'll draw in on themselves and nothing much will happen. You know, I, I've, I've been involved in trying to reorganize part of the Vatican, so, um, so this is... And, and this the BBC. Is, and the BBC. Both so infallible. These are, both infallible. Th these, yeah. are, these are institutions, <laughs> though... though yeah. uh, not, not as infallible as Oxford University, but... Um, <laughs> 
so, so I, I know a bit about the difficulty of, of changing institutions. And there has to be a specific commitment to having somebody who's responsible for reporting year by year what's actually being done. One very last point I would make is any police service has to have a special branch, has to have a, a, a part of the police service which is dedicated to security issues. When we were doing our report in Northern Ireland, police officers themselves were describing the, the special branch as a force within a force. And I think it's extremely Im important that one recognizes, one, that the best, but the best intelligence comes from um, policing on the beat, from um, uh, coppers uh, going around their own communities and knowing them. Secondly, that the people who are in a special um, operation, like a, like a, like a special branch, um, should move in and out um, from normal policing duties, uh, and they shouldn't be. They shouldn't become a career within uh, a career. So, those are the. Um, I'm sure Cathy O'Toole will will offer even better advice than that. On the behalf of the audience, I know there are further questions in the room, but my apologies to those of you who didn't get in, and I'd like to thank Chris Patton. For listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on DublinFestivalOfHistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest.